where I grew up, I grew up in Lisbon, Portugal. Uh, some of y'all have visited recently. You went there, didn't you? No, you did? It's great. I'm always really jealous of when people, like this happened even last week, someone's like, yeah, I'm going on a honeymoon to Portugal. And it's like, great. Uh, it's where I would love to go. It hurts me deeply. But where I grew up, uh, you could drive 30 minutes up the coast uh, to the very tip of Europe, the nose, if you know the map of Portugal, and I'm sure you all do. But anyway, there's a nose. You can drive up to the very nose of Portugal, and there you can stand on these massive cliffs, and there the wind howls. Like, it is so powerful. All you can hear is the wind and only the wind as it beats down on you, on your cheeks, as it causes chaos with all of your hair. I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's magnificent. The wind is powerful. You know, when you drive up, without fail, when we would take, you know, friends and family to go see this, these cliffs, people would be like really nervous, like we're going to fall off these cliffs. They're so massive. What they don't is the wind is so powerful. It takes every, all the strength you have just to stand up and face the cliffs. Not, you know, there's no way you're falling down. Uh, there's some birds, there's actually a Disney documentary about it, uh, that, that fly down these cliffs. Uh, they brave the wind, they beat their wings, they, they've even been like evolved in a special way so that they can get down into the water there. Uh, but astonishingly, it was on those cliffs, and there's a big monument to this fact, but it was on those cliffs uh, that there were these explorers, there's these adventurers, these risk takers, and they stood on those cliffs with the wind beating against them and watching the raging sea out below. And they said, uh, you know what? I'm not content to just stand here against the wind. I want to sail against it. And that's what they did. They designed all of these ways to where they could go directly into the wind and these amazing ships that they created to go. And then the story gets a little darker, colonize the world. But it's pretty, they stood and they said, I want to not just hold resistance against the wind, I want to sail into it. Uh, we're ending this year by returning to the Luke's gospel one last time, and we're turning to Jesus' sermon on what life in the kingdom really looks like. And it's against the wind. It's an active pursuing against the wind. Uh, what Jesus does in this sermon is say, life in the kingdom of God is different than you think. Uh, it's so different than what all the other kingdoms tell you. Uh, the kingdom of God is not about power and, and, and uh, accumulating it. The kingdom of God is not about circumstances. Uh, it's not about status. It isn't about your behavior even. Uh, Jesus tells us that the life in the kingdom is this quiet yet strong protest against the status quo of the human existence. Uh, it's deeper than just surviving against the howling winds and the temptations that we face. Like the life Jesus has for us is more than that. Uh, it's love for enemy. Not just a toleration of enemy, but a love for enemy. Uh, it's a reliance on God alone to judge and correct this world. Uh, the, the kingdom of life, it's a heart uh, transformation, not just behavior modification. All the other kingdoms or the, this world just tells us, hey, if you could just change how you talk and behave. Jesus says, no, no, the kingdom abundant life against the wind is seeing your heart transformed. Uh, it's patience with an eternity in mind, building your life patiently, not filled with sort of a temporal anxious motion. Uh, it's a life lived against the wind's of this world. 
And so what if uh, we allowed these words of Jesus, our last turn to the book of Luke, it's, it's really just one chapter, if we allowed these words of Jesus to mold us over the next six weeks with one week removed for candy. But even then, maybe God can mold us with the candy. And what if we listen to the Spirit beckoning us into this kingdom life? You know, I think those adventurers and those risk takers on the, those cliffs were hearing something within them saying, it's worth it to take that risk and go against the wind. What if we heard the Spirit calling us into that too, not accepting the status quo of the human existence? Uh, I'm going to pray for that, and then we'll get into today's passage. Uh, Jesus, I ask that we would uh, be transformed as a people, that we would see uh, your kingdom, life, and that we would pursue it. You would give us courage and ability to take risks, uh, not for the things that this world has, but that we would have a risk for like a life lived close to you, a life lived in your presence, a life uh, even as Jordan read, where even in our sleep, you're directing our dreams and our thoughts and our concept of you. Uh, God, we pray that you would mold us and shape us by the power of your word and your spirit that works within it. Uh, thank you, Jesus. Amen. Um, this sermon, uh, it's, it's really close, the sermon of Jesus, really close to this, uh, it's popular in the book of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but in Luke's gospel, uh, it's a sermon on a plane. So that could trip you up. You're like, what is it? And here's what most scholars believe, is that Jesus had this speech, this sermon, and he gave it all the time. It was his stump speech, but you know, way better than the stump speeches that we hear. It was like his talk. Uh, you know, it, it's like Frederick Douglass, who used to travel, he would write a sermon once a year, and then he would travel the world delivering that sermon, and people would weep and laugh and cry, and, and Jesus essentially, uh, from eternity past, was always preparing to come and tell us, this is what the kingdom of God is like. And that was his stump speech, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, but in Luke's gospel, it's a sermon on a grassy field right after he had healed all of these sick people, the wounded, desperate people. And once they were healed and once they had committed themselves to following him, he turns to them and he begins to answer this big question, which is, what makes a good life? What makes a really good life? And, that's in, uh, and he does all this in Luke chapter 6. Uh, and I'm going to read verses 17 uh, to 26 now. This is the beginning of it. It says, He went down with them and stood at a level place. Luke really wanted us to know, not Sermon on the Mount. He went down to a level place, not mountainy at all. And a large crowd of his disciples were there. And a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region, from Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because the power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are those when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. 
Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets." This is God's word. This week, I've been thinking a lot about what makes a good and meaningful and significant life. And I'd like to say it's because I've been studying this passage, but that's not true. Uh, It's because this week I got to travel with my family to my grandfather's bedside uh, as he entered hospice care. The very last days and the last moments of his life uh, we got to go and, and talk to him, and, and he's, he's still alive, but, but for me, I said goodbye for, for, for always uh, already. Uh, and for me, it feels like losing a grandfather for sure. I think a lot of us have lost grandfathers. Uh, but for me, it's like losing a very close friend or a mentor uh, or someone who was a pastor to me. Uh, and I say all of that just so you can know my frame of mind. I think it's important for you to know my frame of mind, when I ask these questions, uh, looking at someone's life coming to the end, like the end of life, you know, naked you enter the world, naked you leave the world, uh, someone at 86 years old coming to the very end of the race, and it just really, for me, begs this question, what makes a good life? What makes it? What, what is it that at the end of it, you look back and you're like, oh, that was a good one. I did it. Uh, This passage, I think Jesus kind of confronts it. He looks at it and it's like, well, you know, there's riches, you know, financial resources, having the ability to buy and purchase and set yourself up. That's the good life, a life with comfort. You know, if you have riches, if you have resources, you can buy that home, that home that you've always, you can buy that couch, you know, and sit on it comfortably. Or maybe it's one of those couches that just looks good, but you sense comfort because it looks good, right? You can paint the walls with your financial resources. You can hire people to serve you. You can uh, order it on your apps. You can get the subscriptions that you need. All of this good stuff. Surely the good life, life lived well, comes with having some riches that will enable you to be comforted. Because life is hard, and so the good life must come with the ability to purchase comfort. Or maybe it's being really well-fed, you know, like you got all the food in your stomach. Uh, You get to drink the drinks. You get to go to the wineries, you know, travel to Italy and eat the really good pasta. You know, dine in the places of this city that's, you know, like gourmet glamour. And, and, and taste the tastes and, and lean back and say, wow, I'm really well fed. Surely the good life includes that sort of stuff. You know, drink the coffee, uh, taste the beer, uh, eat the smoked meats. You know, these are just mine. The feasts, obviously the feasts are part of the good life. Or maybe it's, it's pleasure and happiness. You know, a good life certainly must look something like those stock photos that they put in the, you know, empty picture frames that they're trying to sell at Ross or TJ Maxx, right? Where people are smiling and they're laughing and they're experiencing all of this good stuff, you know, the pleasures of this world, happiness, 
Surely at the end of your days, when you're old and decrepit, you look back and you'll think, oh, it was a good life because I had happiness and pleasure and these really wonderfully relaxing vacations or these trips or the sightseeing that I did. That Surely that will be the good life. Uh, I did the experiences. I, I saw the things. I tasted the stuff. That's the good life. Or maybe it's to be popular and to be loved. You know, like seeing my grandfather is, is a little bit annoying. Uh, he has so many friends for generations. Like there are 20-year-olds coming to like hang out and talk to him. And I'm like, look, I've known him since I was a baby. I'm more important than you. But he is so loved. So all these friends, all of these people coming. Uh, family, you know, from all over, from California, Ohio, Arkansas, all driving to like spend these moments. And surely at the end of life, we look back and we say, ah, oh, I was loved. I had friends. I had family that, that tolerated me, you know. Uh, you look to your peers, you know, and they like you. Or you're honored by your neighbors or you're held in high esteem, you know. Like, there's Brad. I like him, you know. Uh, I think about these little kids I'm coaching in soccer. You know, it's like, oh, they're, you know, that's the good life. You know, Jaleel looks at me and says, hey, I like Coach Brad. Like, that's the good life, right? Uh, in my family, it's so weird. They, they think that I'm famous, so they don't know the real life. Uh, but they'll be like, there's Brad. He's famous. Everybody knows him. That's the good life, right? That all these people think about you in this high way, you know? That's it. And doesn't, does that sound good? A life of comfort, a life of friends, of eating big, great feasts, being well-fed, right? It sounds good. I don't think it sounds bad. I mean, I think you all know that I'm about to tell you it's bad. <laughs> so you're resisting. But here's the thing. I actually, I don't think all that stuff is bad. I think that what it feels like in this life is that it's just never gonna come like that. That life of being comforted, of being well-fed, of being you know, loved by other people, it just feels like uh, it's, all, it's like this train that's always about to arrive but never does. That also happened where I grew up too. The train that just doesn't come, and so you have to walk home. It feels like you're just never going to make that life happen. Uh, it's, it reminds me of the, the tragic Greek character in mythology, Sisyphus. You know, he's, the, he's famous for like pushing up this big boulder, like that's his punishment. Uh, Hades tells him he has to push this huge boulder up this hill, uh, but every time he gets close to the top, it rolls back down. And so his whole life is pushing up. That's his eternity. I mean, some amazing torture. Uh, the reason I know it's amazing torture is because that's what life actually feels like. Uh, that we're pushing up this thing. We're going to try to get to that good life. We're almost there, and then we have to start all over, never getting to really taste it. Uh, I know that's true because if you think about riches, it's like every time you get that pay bump, you know? Hey, here's a raise, or you change jobs and they give you a lot more money. It disappears, that more money into expenses immediately, like, like vapor, it vanishes. If you're able to buy comforts, they deteriorate, they break down, they decay. 
Uh, you know, go to an estate sale in the rolling hills or in Palos Verdes of some old rich person, you know, who's died, and you get to go and you get to look around all their stuff. What you will find is things when they were purchased that were very expensive and these gadgets and gizmos, these luxury items that are now being sold for 50 cents each because people are just trying to get rid of them. I know that's the case because I, I think it's wonderful, wonderful to find, you know, ancient gizmos that used to bring people pleasure, but now it brings people nothing. You know, money loses its value constantly. Uh, and the comfort that it brings also goes down. You buy the home and then it becomes too small. You buy the new shoes and then they fade in glory. Again, my own personal ones. <laughs> then you have to constantly protect and worry about the things and those people who might come and remove your riches. You have to invest a lot of time and money. That's what Brad basically does for his life is help rich people protect their stuff, right? Because they're afraid. Someone's going to come and take my comfort. Being well-fed, you know, it's, it, you're never satisfied. You know, you have that good, glamorous dinner, and then there's some other restaurant that you have to go to. And after a while, you're like, oh, that one, you know, oh, just elephant, that's just basic. You know, I need to go, I need to go bigger. I need to go bestia, you know. Uh, bestia is fine, but it's not on the rooftop. I got to go to the perch, Right? There's always, it's always this moving target. I remember being a coffee snob in college and working at Starbucks and being like, hey, you need to do a cupping with the French press. Well, now the French press is not how you're supposed to make coffee. You're not supposed to do a dark roast. It's supposed to be a light roast. Coffee from Asia is not good. It's coffee from Africa. And it keeps changing and it never stops. Like in Australia, they keep changing the way that you're supposed to make a latte so that the rest of the world is still chasing them. And it's true. Every time they make a new way, it's better. It's just better than what we're doing here. But being well-fed is just never satisfying. We're always going to be hungry coming around the corner. Pleasures. Having this good experiences and wonderful life, it gives way to anxiety as well as, what if I lose this feeling? What if this isn't enough? What if I've missed out on some greater pleasure? You know, like, oh yeah, I went on a vacation to Portugal, but I missed the things, I missed the sights, you know? Um, I'm sure you didn't. Uh, I went to Rome and I looked around, but what if I didn't really get it all? Or this like very true thing, what if the reality of my vacation wasn't as good in real life as it was on Instagram? You know, on Instagram, all the kids were happy and smiley, but in real life, they weren't smiley ever. That's Photoshop, you know? We made it look sunny, but really it was cloudy. And we all know that. For those who build their sense of happiness around pleasure, they're always haunted by this anxiety. Suffering will happen. It will find us. And then what? Then what? And I know you're thinking, well, surely to be loved by family and friends, that's the one, you know? Like faith, family, I was just in Texas, football. You know, if you can get those three things, surely family can't be taken down. Uh, who can bet against, you know, being loved by a spouse or having these you know, children that you like or grandchildren that you like. Uh, Henry Nouwen, he wrote this book, uh, In the Name of Jesus, and in it he talks about that kind of love as secondary love, 
the love from friends and spouses and family members. And this is what he says about it. He's like, we know how limited and broken and very fragile that love is because behind the many expressions of this second love, there's always the chance of rejection, withdrawal, punishment, manipulation, violence, even hatred. He goes on to talk about the many gaping wounds that humans experience is actually from that secondary love of our friends, our peers, our colleagues who say that they love us, but then there's this big, deep wound in its place. Uh, When people say, I like Brad, it's a sentence uh, to continue to perform over and over again so that people will continue to say, I like Brad, right? And that's true for you too. I'm just using my own name not to throw you guys under the bus. But it's this constant reminder, I like Brad, I love Brad as long as he continues to change. I love Brad as long as he continues to do well and show up and perform and to do these things. And that's true even, uh, you know, in marital relationships and family and sibling relationships. That's the secondary love. There are limits. There are conditions. And so are we really like Sisyphus? We're never going to get there, are we? You know, because as soon as we reach those financial goals, as soon as we attain the admiration of others, as soon as we eat that delicious meal, we find ourselves in like a new cage that we designed ourselves, a new lock. Martin Luther, in his introduction to Romans, he translated it from, you know, Latin and Greek, or he translated from Latin into German. He wrote this, that, that what we do as humans is we look to created things that we can grab hold of and that we can manipulate and change with our own lives. And what happens is we do all of that. We don't, you know, bend heavenward like our souls are created to. Instead, we bend inward. Uh, and he uses this word incurvitas. It's the same as like an ingrown toenail. But what we do is we as humans have this soul that's inwardly curved, the inward curvature of the soul, that it bends back on us and it's like a black hole, uh, gravitationally pulling all things into itself, not to live, but to die. Or as Jesus said, woe to the rich, for their comfort isn't sustained. Woe to the well-fed, because they will continue to hunger. Woe to those who are laughing now, because they will weep. And so what are we to do? If, I mean, this is kind of, I'm realizing now, a little depressing. What are we to do? Maybe we should redefine the good life. Uh, maybe we should do like stoicism, which is, you know, life doesn't matter. It's a bunch of random things that are happening. It's all just kind of a void and a vapor anyway. Let's just get real and get on with it, you know? Don't pursue anything too hard. Nothing's going to let you down if you do it that way. Don't worry about anything, as Jesus said, but offer thanksgiving to God. You know, you're like, ah, there's some Jesus-y twists to it. So maybe that's what we should do is redefine it and just say, you know, don't worry about those other things. Just, just ignore it. Just kind of bravely go through this life. Uh, maybe we could deny uh, ourselves. Take a vow of poverty. You know, comfort, happiness. That's not the Christian life. Uh, the Christian life is hard. You know you're doing the Christian life correctly when it's really terrible. Like, that's the way. 
You know, and Jesus does say things like, you know, there's no place to lay your head in the kingdom of God, sell all you have to the poor, etc., etc. And so maybe what we should do is just press into the burdens of life. Uh, deny yourself pleasure, you know? The Christian life is not supposed to be filled with fun and games. It's serious. Or maybe we do, you know, escapism or isolation or separation. You know, the, there were these uh, ancient mystics who what they did is they left the cities and they left the commotion of life and they went out into the desert. Some of them would sit on these really tall poles where they could be away from all people and just be in their thoughts and think their things in silence and in solitude. And then they were like, that's the good life. If you could just remove yourself from everything, get outside of yourself. Or maybe it's hedonism. What we really need to do is know we can be as Christians, the people who just know nothing satisfies, but we'll just enjoy it all anyway. You know, eat, drink, be merry. Uh, just know it's not going to last, but just have fun with it, you know? Have fun with life. Um, those are kind of the four options, I think, at this moment. Uh, as you think those, I think, yeah, you put them up. What, which of those is your kind of a preferred adjustment to the good life? When you're pursuing the good life and it's not working out, what do you go to? And you guys get to, to answer Spouses don't need to answer for each other, or they do. <laughs> you can say, my friend. <laughs> I have a good friend, and what they do is, yeah. Anybody brave enough? Stoicism is... Yeah, totally. That's good. All of them? Yeah. It depends on what... They're like keys in a lockbook situation I don't like. Mm. So if I can't control something, I'm going to be stoked about it. Mm. Um, if I can ignore it and deny it, I can get away and escape. And then if he doesn't help, you know, bring on the whiskey. <laughs> totally. If he knows him helps, bring on the whiskey. That's a good t-shirt. Yeah, just go, oh, nothing matters. Yeah. Deny yourself. Yeah. Totally. Anybody else? Um, I like to have fun, so kind of is definitely acting the most fun out. <laughs> is the most fun. Yeah. Totally. Let's eat the ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> YOLO. <laughs> YOLO, exactly. Yeah, I should have said YOLO. And said, hedonism's pretty pretentious, yeah. Actually, they all are. My bad. Hedonism is also great for groups. Hedonism is great for groups. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell it like Candy Palooza. <laughs> Yeah. It's interesting, the Sermon on the Mount, this, or the Sermon of Jesus, begins with this direct breakdown of what we think the good life is. And he wants us to know this. 
that you can't get into the life that you are made for in these ways or with these methods. It just doesn't work. And woe to you who try. And that woe word is this this word of punishment and grief simultaneously. Like, I am sad that this is what you're going to get. Like when you tell your child, I'm sorry, but you're not going to watch, you know, the end of that movie today because you disobey. It's like, woe to you, but I'm really sad about it. And Jesus says, woe to you who try. Uh, Luke scholar Daryl Bach says, the sermon of Jesus is a sermon of the promise, the promise of the kingdom. It's not a sermon about what we need to do better, but it's a sermon about the promise of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is starting this short teaching with these beatitudes, these blessing statements to say, the kingdom of God, that life, the life that you can find in the kingdom of God is the good life. It is that kind of promise. It's a promise that if you're in the kingdom of God, you will receive all of the things that you need for the good life. If you're poor and you're removed from the comforts of this world, if you're hated, if you're grieving, if you're alone, there is a promise in that kingdom. And the promise of the kingdom of God is riches that last. When it says, blessed are you who are poor because you're the king, you receive the kingdom of God. A comfort that's never ending, yours. The thing that you possess is the kingdom, the rule and the reign of God. In every sorrow or sickness or struggle, the kingdom is yours. And you will know the comfort of a God who created the heavens and the earth and has brought you into the center of his presence. Yours is the kingdom. The good life, the really good life, is riches and comfort. So you're like, ah, we shouldn't want comfort. No, no, the riches, the comfort, that's for you. But it's not these earthly things that you can buy in a store or that you can borrow money for a bank for. No, it's the riches of the presence of God and the comfort of the gift of God, eternal life with him. Blessed are the poor who can't purchase comfort. Because yours is the kingdom. The truth is we, are all the, we can't purchase the comfort we were created to receive. There's a promise of the kingdom. It's the satisfaction, deep satisfaction to the depths of your bones. Blessed are those who hunger now because you will be filled. You will be satisfied regardless of inflation or job reports or fine dining changes or Yelp review shifts, you will be filled and satisfied. Why? Because God came to bring life and bring it to the full over brimming. Like he came and you will be filled. It says, Psalm 23 says, he will lead you to green pastures and you will be satisfied. He will bring you to fresh drinking water and your thirst will be quenched. These are promises The longings of your soul will be satisfied because you were made for God and you will receive God and you will receive it in this kingdom. That's the promise. The promise of the kingdom of God is joy instead of mere pleasure. Like blessed are those who mourn, who grieve, who know that the pleasures of this world will not alleviate the grief. Why? Because you will be filled with laughter. Laughter is a funny one, I think. Like blessed are those who laugh. 
I mean, we all know the health benefits maybe at this point of laughter. You know, if you can laugh for five minutes a day, it's like good for your heart or something. I think most things we do are good for our heart, except for the whiskey and the smoking. But this is actually a callback to Sarah, who was married to Abraham. And they were supposed to have this child of promise. It's all in the book of Genesis. And she was a person of mourning and grieving and anxiety because she could not bear a child that was promised to her. And then God turned that mourning and that grief into laughter. When God says, no, no, I'm going to give you this promise, she laughs. She laughs. And it's also a callback to the to those who were exiled and taken from Egypt and they were in, or taken from Israel and they were enslaved. When God says, I'm going to turn your crying and your grief now over your burning city, I'm going to turn it into joy and dancing. It's also as Mother Teresa says, who lived this really, you know, really hard life without any of the pleasures or the comforts of this world, yet was always like full of joy. And people would ask her, why are you so joyful? Like, how are you able to do that? And she says a few things. One of is that joy is actually pursuing suffering, but with hope. Like knowing that there is a God and a promise, joy comes from pursuing suffering, knowing that. It also reminds me of the laughter of the garden, uh, that as the women are seeing that Jesus is not in his tomb and they begin to be afraid and concerned that someone's stolen his body and they, they walk through the garden and they see this gardener and they go to him and they talk to him and they realize that the gardener is actually Jesus and their mourning gets turned into laughter. Mother Teresa also says, never forget the joy of the resurrection, that every sad thing will become untrue. And that's a hope that produces a delight that can never be taken away. It can't shift and change by, you know, just the palate tastes of people. It's not a a vapor like a vacation or a holiday. It produces lasting delight. There's a promise in the kingdom of God, and it's love. Love without condition and without limits you will be made well. Henry Nouwen also writes, uh, the same guys before, he says this, the radical good news is that the second loves, the love of your friends and your spouses and your family, those secondary loves are just merely a shadow. They're a reflection of the first love. And the first love is offered to us by God and there are no shadows. You are loved without condition and without limits. I mean, that phrase, without condition and without limits, is probably the best thing that you will hear today. Because most of us do not know that we are loved that way. We don't live in that love. We don't acknowledge that love. We're not aware of it. We are used to, and this is the, this is the sailing against the wind part. We're used to resisting the wind and saying, no, no, I'm lovable, I'm really good. I I remember I did that thing and I showed up that one time, right? I'm so lovable. But what we don't know is the good life is actually knowing that you are loved without any condition or any limits. There's no shadows, there's no maybes, there's no betrayals. There's no, as long as you keep behaving, or as long as you keep performing, or as long as you continue to change. No, Jesus is just that unbreakable love that's abundant, 
and it ushers you into a popularity with the most high. It says, blessed are those who are hated now because you're actually cheered on and beloved by God and the most holy of holies, the the one who created an ever-expanding universe is saying, you're popular with me. Like, you are popular with God. The good news about the promise of the kingdom is that Jesus has brought it to us in the full. Whoever believes in him, you know, doesn't perish. Uh, they They don't have to spin their wheels until death, but instead receives eternal and abundant life. You know, Jesus doesn't enter the world to condemn the world, but to save it to save it from these cycles of trying to purchase comfort, trying to get themselves well-fed. Instead, he, he comes to save it and to bring it into abundant life. He enters the world to remove the shackles, to remove the curse of sin, so that we might be unified and brought into his kingdom as citizens, not as servants. See, Jesus isn't like Sisyphus. You know, he, he goes to the death, he's put in the tomb, the stone is rolled away, and then he successfully rolls the stone away once and for all, and he brings us all into good life. That's good. Now, this is what it all means. To be his disciple and to be a citizen of his kingdom, uh, it doesn't come with these earthly guarantees or priorities of riches or relevance uh, or pleasures or popularity. It doesn't come with that. It does come with the promise and a guarantee, though, of a good life filled with comfort from the Most High, with satisfaction for your deepest longings, with joy and suffering, and with love that you were made to receive. And so we stand in, the ki- in God's kingdom. We stand in his love and his promise. Even when everything else uh, and everyone else around us seems to be telling us You're failing at life. You're not good enough. You don't have what you need. Even when everything seems to be saying the opposite, we sail against the wind. In Christ, we've been given abundant life. Uh, Rich Mullins, he's one of my favorites. He also, uh, he, he died tragically. But he wrote this song about this, that he said, if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you'll pull me through. And if I weep, let it be as a man who's longing for his home. And if I can't, if I can't stand on the promise, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that was born in me these songs. It's a great song, If I Stand. Some of you with uh, dorky fathers probably heard that song before. The promise of the kingdom is peace like a river. You know, it's hope like an ocean. It's love that's just like crashing down. And so if you're at a point where you need comfort, like, do you need comfort? Seek it in Christ. Do you need joy? Find it in Jesus. Do you need satisfaction? Look to the king of heaven and earth. Do you need approval? Seek it in Jesus who loves you without condition or limit. There is one command in this entire passage, uh, and it is rejoice. It's verse 23. It's the one command that can be found in this whole thing. Everything else is just promise and grief. But in it, it's like rejoice. The way into this life 
You know, it's not consumerism, it's not stoicism, it's none of those things. It's rejoicing. Uh, what is a Christian? A Christian is a person marked by joyful worship. There's no such thing as a worshipless Christian. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a joyless disciple. There's no such, if, if there's something in your heart that's it's not about happiness, but about joy, about suffering with a hope, there's something missing in the heart. There's something askew in the belief system or in your pursuits or what makes you well. And so ask yourself, am I worshipful to the point where I could declare joy and then declare joy again and again? You know, there's a lot to be said about my grandfather, and I'm sure I will where none of you are around uh, at a funeral. But there is one thing, you know, even though he sang way too loud for the ability of his, you know, vocal cords to hit the keys. And despite a life that really there's lots of tragedy in it, lots of accidents, lots of disappointments, and he largely lived his life 86 years in anonymity. Like nobody, nobody really knows him. In spite of all of those things, he was a person, is a person, who delights in rejoicing in God. He lived a good life. And that is what I long for, for myself and for all of us. We might not achieve our goals or get to the things that we want to achieve, but can we delight in rejoicing in God? And so let's do that now. We're going to have this time of response, uh, taking communion and singing again. I will say, if you're in need of comfort or joy or healing or peace, you know, use this time to seek that in prayer with other people. Like, go to your missional community leader or an elder or to me and say, like, can you pray for me? I need comfort. I need healing. You know, if you're struggling to worship, you're in a moment where it's just so dry and hard, I want you to listen to the voices of others singing loud. So if you're someone who can't or who isn't struggling to sing loud, sing even louder with more joy. Uh, Sing loud uh, for all to hear, as Buddy the Elf says. We're almost to Buddy the Elf season. And if you're aware of the needs of others, be brave enough to say, I'm going to go to them, I'm going to put my hand on their shoulder, and I'm going to say, I'm going to pray for you because I know you need comfort. I know that you're struggling, and you need to know that you're satis like, you can find satisfaction, God, that you can be well-fed. Um, and so as you take your communion, even allow yourself time to confess to one another, your need to stand in the promise of Jesus' kingdom. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask that we would uh, stand in the promise of your kingdom uh, when everything else seems to be saying uh, something else. And God, I pray for us as a people to know your comfort, to know your joy, uh, to, to have satisfaction deep in our bones. Uh, God, I pray that even as we take the bread and the wine, that we would know uh, the depths at which this promise is secure, uh, the promise of your kingdom. Uh, thank you so much, Jesus, for this moment we share together. Uh, but thank you even more for the moments that we don't share together when you continue to remind us even then that your kingdom is worthy and that you are worthy of worship. And so help us to delight uh, in worship. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.